You're listening to the Tri-State Community Church Podcast, a ministry of the Associate Reformed Presbyterian Church located in the greater Pittsburgh metropolitan area. For more information, including service times, please visit us at facebook.com forward slash Tri-State Reformed Church. Psalm 4. Let's hear God's Word. To the choir master with stringed instruments, a psalm of David. Answer me when I call, O God of my righteousness. You have given me relief when I was in distress. Be gracious to me and hear my prayer. O man, how long shall my honor be turned into shame? How long will you love vain words and seek after lies? But know that the Lord has set apart the godly for himself. The Lord hears when I call to him. Be angry and do not sin. Ponder in your own hearts, on your beds, and be silent. Offer right sacrifices and put your trust in the Lord. There are many who say, who will show us some good? Lift up the light of your face upon us, O Lord. You have put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and wine abound. In peace I will both lie down and sleep. For you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. Heavenly Father, we thank you for these sacred words, Father. And we pray, Father, that you'd be pleased to bless us this morning as we seek to understand them. We pray, Father, that you would teach us and lead us and guide us, O Father. And ultimately, Lord, we pray that you would align our hearts, Lord, with the truths that are here set forth with these words. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, if you consult the commentaries... Um, you'll find that there's a lot of ink spilt in Psalm 4 trying to arrive at the historical context of Psalm 4. And last week we were looking at Psalm 3, and I, we spent some attention on the title. It's uh, Psalm of David when he fled from Absalom, his son. And I'd made it uh, mention that uh, given the title, you know, given the historical context in that title uh, does add some concreteness to its application uh, and to our understanding of it. Now, in this psalm here, we really aren't given uh, specifically uh, a historical context. Um, some, especially among older commentaries, they will liken the historical context to David's contest with Absalom, you know, when his son rises up against him and tries to usurp his throne. And it's quite possible that this, is, that this was the historical context for the psalm, um, because if you look at verse 2, uh, David says out, Oh man, how long shall my honor be turned into shame? Well, his, certain, his honor was certainly being uh, turned into shame when, uh, you know, at, at the cry, Absalom is uh, being made king. David has to flee out of the palace and we're told that he, he leaves barefoot and weeping with sackcloth and ashes on his head. So there we see it. It's a, it's a time of great humiliation to the Lord's anointed. So it would certainly fit in that context. There are others who say, well, it may not necessarily be David's contest with his son Absalom, but it's a time where the Lord's anointed is being dishonored. The Lord's anointed is being defamed. And again, this is coming from uh, verse 2 there. How long shall my honor be turned into shame? And I think this third option that I'll give you is, at least it appears with the collection of books that I have access to, that it's a, a, a newer uh, take on this, is that this, the historical context of the psalm is a bad economy. In fact, in pre preparing for um, this morning's message, I did read one sermon that was entitled, I think, something like A Prayer for a Bad Economy. Uh, and where are they getting that from? Well, if you look at verse 7, 
David says, you've put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and wine abound. Now, I'll confess, when I first read that in the sermon, I was not all that convinced. Um, at different times, when I, over the years as I've read verse 7, I've seen verse 7 as really a, uh, it's a way to uh, poetically put, I mean, when you're trying to express the kind, a great amount of joy, when you're trying to express joy, um, this is a good way to do it because people can relate to this. It's very joyous. You know, if we were in this ancient economy, one of the most joyous things we could experience is when our fields are producing. You know, if our fields are being really productive, we know, okay, we, we're going to have a good winter. We're going to have a, you know, we've got a good harvest. Um, and when you bring that into contemporary terms, it relates to the economy. I mean, it is a joy to have enough money to pay your bills, isn't it? It's a joy when there's a little bit left over and you can, you can do some things that you've wanted to do. That is truly a joy. And I've always taken verse 7 as David is speaking about the joy that the Lord has put in his heart. And what is he saying? I have more joy even when you have, when, or when the unbeliever, if you will, or the rest of the world has when their fields are, are, uh, are, are just filling to the brim with the harvest. So I, I, I wasn't necessarily convinced that it's a prayer for a bad economy, uh, but they made, uh, as, as the sermon continued, other points of contact were being made, um, and we'll look at that as we go along. And I, I really think that uh, we don't know the historical context. I've given you three choices here, and I, have, I am of the stripe that that's the point. We don't know the historical context. And this is something that the psalmist does with some frequency in, this, in, in the Psalter. He doesn't give us the historical context. Now, why would he choose to not give us the historical context? Because that broadens its application. I, that broadens its application. Now, the type of psalm we have here is an individual lament, we could call it that, although some would call it even a corporate lament because of the uh, there is a corporate dimension to it. But I think the best way we could describe this psalm is to say that it's a psalm of confidence. A psalm of confidence. And we're going to see that in its proper place. And I think once we see that, we're going to see what Psalm 4 is really about. Not so much trying to give us details of the historical context upon which it's set in, but it's a psalm of, con of confidence that any believer, man or woman or child, who is in Christ Jesus, can pray when they find themselves in any kind of distress. It would apply to a bad economy. We could apply it to that. But to say that it's a psalm for a bad economy, I'm not convinced of that. Um, it's, it's, a, it's a psalm for distress. That distress could be a bad economy. That stress could be a broken marriage. That stress could be all kinds of things. So with that in mind, let's take a look at our psalm. Let's start with verse 1. The psalmist calls out, David in this case, he calls out, he says, Answer me when I call, O God of my righteousness. You've given me relief when I was in distress. Be gracious to me and hear me. Something really interesting, the words relief and distress. Start with distress. Distress actually in the Hebrew means narrow. The word means narrow. And relief means broad. And someone might think, well, narrow and broad? Well, how do you get relief and distress out of narrow and broad? We do it all the time. 
We do it all the time in English. Um, have you ever used the, the phrase, I'm in a tight spot here? Usually, like, one scenario is you've got an important deadline, and it's coming down on the deadline, and you find yourself, listen, I am in a tight spot here. And then something happens where you're given a little more time to do it. And what do you say in response to that? Oh, okay, now we've got some wiggle room. How often do we use those expressions? It's the same thing that the Hebrew language is doing with narrow and broad. David is saying, I am in a tight spot here. And what he's really saying is he's looking at past uh, experiences. He says, you have given me relief when I was in distress. This is another thing the psalmist does a lot is he looks back at past deliverances for strength for present problems. It's a really important thing to do. I was thinking about how many illustrations I could give for this one. I'll just give one that pertains to ministry. You know, um, going into ministry is not easy, and I don't think it should be. I am so convinced today, more so than I have ever been, that going into ministry should not be easy. Why? Because I'm thinking back for Tammy and I, I mean, we had to leave. I basically had to leave the, the position that I had. You know, you spend all these years of your life, you work yourself up to about here, and then you drop out and you go to school full time. And, you know, we were, I took two part-time jobs that equated to a full-time job, both of which only pay. I made more when I was 22 years old than I was making then. And you're watching like a lot of stuff. You, you've got stuff. You're selling this. You're selling that. You're selling this. And it's not easy. It's actually very difficult. And through the course of that, I've been out of seminary long enough now to have watched. There were a, a lot of classmates who had a full ride paid for them. They had their tuition paid for, a donor. Someone just wrote a check. Their tuition was all paid. And I can't tell you how many of these folks now aren't even in ministry any longer. Because when you get into ministry, it's very difficult. And what's my point? Well, when you're in these difficulties of ministry, you can look back and you can you can look back and you can look at your spouse. Tammy, now how many times have we done this? Where we look back and we're like, been through this before. You know, we've been through this before. And you're never gonna get to see the Lord deliver you until you're in trouble. How's the Lord going to show you how he delivers you until you're in trouble? Now, if we want to make everything easy for ourselves, which is the tendency to do, if we want to make everything really easy, and it's a danger, it's a danger, it's, a, it's certainly a danger. I want to spend time on it because it's a, it's a danger that we find ourselves in. We want to make everything easy for our kids. We want to make everything easy for each other. We can't do that. We mustn't do that. Now, I'm not saying we need to make it hard it's hard enough if it's just left alone. But we have to be, we have to exercise wisdom here because we can never experience God's deliverance unless we're in a tight spot. Can't. David is someone who was constantly in a tight spot. This psalm could have probably applied to half of his life, actually, the truth be told. And what is he saying here? You've given me relief when I was in distress. How could he say that? Because he's been distressed constantly. And constantly God delivered him. And it strengthened his faith every step of the way, didn't it? How blessed it is. You've given me relief when I was in distress. Notice this phrase also in verse 1. When, when David is calling out to God and he says, answer me when I call, 
he makes a reference of, O God of my righteousness. You see that? That is something unique to Psalm 4, where he calls out to God his righteousness. Now, what's that all about? Well, God is righteous, right? He's inherently righteous. In fact, righteousness is essential to his character, and everything that God does is righteous. When he creates, he creates with a righteous creativity, if you will. His providence is righteous. Everything that God does is righteous, including his salvation and his deliverance. Now, I don't know if you've ever put these two together, and maybe not. I don't know. I don't remember the last time I explained these relationships, and you kind of got to put your thinking cap on a little bit, but there's a relationship between God's deliverance and his righteousness. The... Uh, the um, uh, prophets bring this out. Isaiah, for example, I think around Isaiah 44 brings this out. You know, uh, Isaiah is proclaiming to the people of Judah that they're going to be carried off by the Babylonians, but then he also does something that is absolutely stunning. He looks down the quarter of time, and God, through Isaiah, tells the people of Israel that a king who he mentions by name, Cyrus, will issue a decree that will have the, enable the exiles to return back to the Holy Land and build, rebuild Jerusalem. It's an amazing thing. Absolutely amazing. Name a king who's going to be in this position who will, will reign 150 years from now. Name him by name and state everything that he's going to do. This is, in essence, what God does. And in the context of that, God speaks of his salvation and his righteousness, hooking salvation and righteousness together. There's another place in Jeremiah, Jeremiah 23, the righteous branch uh, passage, if you will, speaking of the Messiah who is to come. And he is going to be the Lord, our righteousness. So here we have this idea of righteousness and salvation being hooked together. Now, how, how are these two things hooked? How are these two things connected? It comes back to the covenant. God has chosen a people for himself where he said, listen, I'm going to make you my people. I am going to be your God and I am going to dwell with you. Now, this wouldn't be a new concept to the ancients. In fact, the pagan nations had their own version of that with their own gods, what the Bible says are false gods, which are not gods at all. But the difference between Yahweh and the rest of the nations is the rest of the nations were always trying to offer these rituals and these sacrifices, if you will, hoping to gain the favor of these gods that they might come to their aid. Uh, if they have to go out to battle, if you will or not. Whereas God has made a covenant promise to his people to be their God. What's involved in being their God? Protection. So it is righteous for God to protect his people. When God protects his people, he is acting righteously. That's the big difference between God and the pagan nations. In fact, there are stories in antiquity of, of the ancient gods, if you will, the ancient pagan pantheon where gods would trick their people, where gods would make promises and not keep their promises. And you had that kind of thing in there. That, that was all part of their, uh, of their religion, if you will, whereas God makes all his promises and he keeps them in covenant faithfulness, doesn't he? 
And even think about, you know, one verse that you hear all the time from me, 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, God is what? He's faithful and what? Notice the word just. He's faithful and just to do what? Forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from righteousness. He's not just faithful here. He's acting in justice. He's acting in complete righteousness. Now, how can he do that? Because he has given us a Savior. He is not compromising his justice in any way. He's not compromising his holiness in any way. He's not throwing out a bunch of laws and saying, don't forget it. Just for, don't worry about it, everybody. We're going to forget about it. No, he punishes Jesus in our place, doesn't he? And you see the relationship there between salvation and righteousness. Now, David understands this, which is just absolutely stunning. David understands this. He says, oh, Lord, answer me when I call. Oh, God of my righteousness. You know, some people go even as far as to say that David understood the imputation of Christ's righteousness to himself. You know, some people will actually go that far with this verse. Answer me when I call, O oh God of my righteousness. You've been given, you've given me relief when I was in distress. Now, David's not being presumptuous in any way because he says, be gracious to me. Or some of your translations might say, be merciful to me. It's not something he deserves. He understands that. For God to act, he's acting in a gracious manner. But God is also acting in a righteous manner, if you will. Be gracious to me and hear my prayer. And then David, David says, oh men. How long shall my honor be turned to shame? Now, some of you will have a footnote after men, and if you look at the margin, at least in the, AS, the ESV, it says men of rank. The reason for that is by simply saying men, the Hebrew word is kind of being veiled a little bit. Uh, the Hebrew word that's used in this particular passage is a word that would describe powerful men. It would describe the kind of wealthy, powerful character that would probably have access to the king. You know, you go into any government or in any part of this world, you're going to have the leaders and surrounded by the leaders are going to be these wealthy and powerful individuals. And that it is this circle of people that David is speaking to. All men of rank, he is saying, how long shall my honor be turned into shame? How long will you love vain words and seek after lies? Now, this really speaks to the heart of unbelief, doesn't it? What is at the very heart of unbelief? At the very heart of unbelief is dishonoring or defaming Christ and chasing after lies, isn't it? Think about the lies that we embrace when we're walking in unbelief. The, the simple lie that, that Jesus is not reigning, that Jesus is not in session with God or that God did not create the heavens and the earth. Think about that for a minute. If God didn't create the heavens and the earth, then how did they get here? And you think of the silly explanations that are offered by highly educated people. And you think to, myself, you, you think to yourself, how in the world can anybody embrace that? How could we have ever embraced that? if we once embrace that. It's because we chase after lies. And the Apostle Paul makes it really clear. Why do we chase after these lies? We're believing what we want to believe. We know that God exists. It's really Paul, 
Paul tells us and makes it really clear in Romans 1, 18 and following, that when you look out at this world and you see all that's been made, there God is showing us that he has made it. How else can you explain it being there? You know, I, I just had this conversation with somebody, you know, I'm, you know, um, a young family that was telling them, listen, you know, one of these days you want to have children, that God blesses you with the children. One of these days you're going to have these creatures from outer space living in your house. These creatures from outer space are called teenagers. <laughs> they come from outer space. And they're going to be doing, what, what you're going to be telling them to do is you're going to be telling them to turn the lights off. And you're going to be saying, those lights don't stay on by themselves. Well, you know, we can say this, our unbelieving hearts can say this, while, the, while we walk out underneath the sun and assume that the sun is shining by itself. Who keeps the sun shining? Who keeps it orbiting? And it's, I don't understand the orbits of the sun. I, that's not my area. But I know it's really precise. You remember in science class, you had that thing that you could spin around and everything spun around. It was kind of neat and cool. All, what keeps all this going? Obviously, it's God who keeps all this going. And to deny that is to, <laughs> is to speak after a lie. But uh, there's one way before we move on, and there's one application that we must make. When we think about how Jesus is de defamed, how his honor is turned into shame, one way I think probably maybe the greatest way where we defame Jesus' glory is simply by not coming and showing up in public worship. Think about that for a minute. And a lot of times we think, okay, Jesus is being defamed whenever people use his name in vain or they use his name for a curse word or they use that. And sure enough, he is being defamed. But what about when we walk in difference and we simply don't even show up to worship him publicly, of how he's being dishonored by that. Um, David says in verse 3, and this brings us to the heart of the psalm. Notice in verse 3 it says, but no. But no. Notice there's a, you already, before we even get any more, notice there's a real sense of confidence here. This is a psalm of confidence. Okay, these powerful men are shaming the anointed. This is a dangerous situation for David, by the way. Uh, if they continue to do it, these are powerful men of rank. They continue to do it. Next thing you know, there could be a coup. Um, David's life could be in danger. This is very, very dangerous. Um, giving false testimony in the ancient world was something that could cost somebody their life. Ruining their reputation could ruin their ability to make a living which could put them in poverty, it still can today. It's a very, it's, it's not, it's, it's, this is a serious matter that's taking place. Notice the confidence that David has here, though. He's speaking to these men, and he says, listen, know that the Lord has set apart the godly for himself. In other words, he's saying to these characters, while you're busy defaming me, you need to understand something. There's something you need to know. The Lord has set apart the godly for himself. He hears me when I call him. Where is his confidence coming from? His confidence is coming from the covenantal promises that God has made. Not just the covenant that God has made with David, but the covenant that God makes with Abraham. God has taken David. He's caught him. We, we've, you know, in recent weeks, we've been talking about the story. David isn't looking to be king. He isn't jockeying. David was never jockeying to move up the corporate ladder. And that's something we ought to think about. 
He was never jockeying to try to move up the corporate ladder. He was in a field tending his sheep, being faithful to the work that he was called to do when God pulled him out of the field and put him in the throne, didn't he? David knew and understood that. It was you, O Lord, who set me apart. God has set apart the godly for himself. He will hear when I call him. Now, what kind of effect should this have on these men? That comes in verse 4. Be angry and do not sin. I think the New American Standard translates this phrase the very best because it says tremble and do not sin. A lot of the Hebrew scholars are saying tremble would be perhaps a better translation than anger. Now, Paul, Paul uh, alludes to this verse in his letter to the Ephesians in chapter 4, verse 26, when he says, be angry and do not sin. And he goes on to say, do not let the sun uh, set on your anger, if you will. Some of you will be familiar with that passage. Um, however, and what Paul is doing, he's alluding to the, the great translation of the, of the uh, scriptures. Um, but uh, scholars tell us this actual word here, um, angry, uh, tremble. Um, the, the word can be translated angry, agitated, tremble. Uh, it means all of these things. Now, if we, if we bring tremble in here, tremble and do not sin, why would they tremble? Well, if the Holy Spirit were to convict them that the, the Lord has set David apart for himself, then what's that going to do to their hearts? Wait a second, the one we've been slandering, the one we've been defaming, the one that we've been busy taking his honor and running it around in the mud, um, God is actually with this one? You know, it almost reminds you. So, you know, the, 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 young, the, young, the youngster who has a really big and tough um, older brother that some bullies don't know about, you know, and they're picking on the, they're picking on the youngster and, the youngster goes home and gets his brother. Well, it's not funny anymore. It's a little bit like that. Don't push that too far. But what does David want to understand? What, what does David want them to understand? You need to stop what you're doing, and you need to stop it right now because you need to understand something. The Lord has called the godly to himself. Tremble. Tremble. Because obviously you're displaying no fear of God in your life whatsoever. Tremble, sin no more, contemplating these things on your bed in silence. And in verse 5, offer right sacrifices and put your trust in the Lord. Whether we take the word anger or the word tremble makes no difference. It's a call to repentance either way, isn't it? He's calling them to repentance is what he is doing. He's calling them to repentance. Offer right sacrifices. You know, the interesting thing, and, and the, the commentators will bring this out, you know, when, when Absalom rises up against his father trying to usurp his throne, he actually does offer sacrifices to the Lord. Can you believe that? I mean, here he is, rolling, steamrolling against the Lord and against his anointed, and he has the audacity to offer sacrifices to God to make his plans successful. Think about the hypocrisy of that. I mean, that's a, that is a really heinous example of where the heart is completely disconnected from the act of worship. Here David is calling them, to, he's calling them into the act of worship, but he's calling them into the act of heart worship, isn't he? The idea is get your heart in the right place here. 
You've got your heart on something else. If it's a bad economy, your heart's on your pocketbook. That's a common problem, isn't it? It could be a bad economy. Here's another one. It could be a bad economy that's the result of the way they've been treating the Lord's anointed. That's one way that the Lord would typically wake Israel up, and it's one way he typically wakes, wakes his people up, isn't it? As he holds back on the blessings. You know, it would be a dangerous thing for the Father to continue to bless us when we're walking in sin, wouldn't it? Oftentimes, he withholds the blessing in order to wake us up, to bring us to repentance so things can be made right, right? In verse 6, there are many who say, who will show us some good? This, um, we don't know who the many are, it could, and, and I, think that's, I think that's on purpose. Is why I know it's on purpose, um, that we don't know the many are. This could be both the faithful and the unfaithful uh, wavering. Uh, the unfaithful could be saying, okay, who's going to show us good? Not this, not this one, not David. It's going to be someone else, or maybe it's going to be some other false god. I think the NIV translates uh, verse 5 or verse 4. Um, oh, verse 2, the end of verse 2. I think the NIV, uh, the idea of seeking after lies, if anyone has the NIV open, I think it uses false gods there, doesn't it? Does anybody have an NIV open? It's false gods. Yeah. I used to be better at getting all these translations right when I was using my old trusty Bible works. One of the things I just love about Bible works is you could just stack all these different translations up and have them on one screen. And the accordance software that I've been using for the last three months, I guess now, I absolutely love and still learning how to do more and more with it. But it doesn't have that feature. Like you can stack. I've figured out how to stack different versions, but you can only usually get three of them, and it takes up half the pain. They just, I wish they would design it like Bible works, where you, you had one pain, and you had a whole list of them, and you could just scroll down through, and you could look at them. And I would look at them through the week, through the course of my preparation, and generally they would stick in my mind. So I knew. The New American Standard said this. The King James said that. I've lost that. So uh, pardon me on that one. Um, maybe I need to do it old school like I used to do it and just scatter Bibles out all over the desk. Um, that might be the way to do it. But, but they're asking in verse 6, who will show us some good? And what is David's response to that? Lift up the light of your face upon us, O Lord. David is making an allusion here to what we call the Aaronic blessing. We brought this up a couple of weeks ago where um, uh, the Lord commanded through Moses, commanded Aaron to pronounce this blessing upon Israel. Uh, the Lord uh, bless you and keep you and make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you and give you peace. And that is what carries us through to the end of the psalm. Lift up the light of your face upon us, O Lord, is David's petition. Who will show us any good? Lift up the light of your face, O Lord. Shine your, shine your, your, your beautiful countenance upon, our, upon us, O Lord. And then this is when he breaks out with these words. You've put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and wine abound. And that's why I really think what David is doing is he's just pointing at something. I can remember years ago when I was in business, you know, the joy of, you know, you're trying to get a business start and someone just give you a, someone just gave you an unexpected, really big order, which means that you got a new client and there's going to be a lot of action there. There is a lot of joy in that. 
Anybody who's ever been in sales understands that. You get a new order. You get a new client, and you have a new relationship. And David is saying, oh, no, 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 no. That is a joy. He's not diminishing that that's a joy. But he's saying, oh, the light of the Lord's countenance shining upon us. That puts more joy in our hearts than when their grain and wine abound. And then he says, in peace, I will both lie down and sleep. For you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. See the confidence that David ends with, a psalm of confidence. Now, let's look at this one more time, just really quickly. I want to look at verse 3 one more time in closing. I want to show how we can pray through this as New Testament believers. Notice David's confidence comes from a theological point. What is that theological point? The theological point is that the Lord has set apart the godly for himself. See, theology, when it's taught correctly, matters. It should lead us to confidence and joy. Not presumption, but confidence and joy. Now, if you keep your hand in verse, in, uh, verse 3 of Psalm 4, and you turn back to our, our um, opening call to worship this morning from uh, Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians. I just wanted, this is what led me to this particular passage. In 2 Thessalonians uh, chapter 2, verses 13 and onward, there Paul is saying we ought to always give thanks to God for you, brothers, by the Lord, because God what? He'll give you a minute to find your place. Chose. Thank you, Charlie. He chose. He chose you as the first fruits to be saved. In Ephesians, you know, chapter 1 of Ephesians is, makes it really clear that God chose us before the foundations of the world. What a wonderful truth that is. In other words, well, if you continue to look here, to be saved through what? The theological word there, sanctification. To be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. What is sanctification? Sanctification is being made more and more like Christ. But one of the other, does anybody's translation have consecration, by the way? I don't know how many different translations we have here. But the word could be translated consecration. Hagiasmos could be translated consecration. What, what does consecration mean? It means to set something apart, to devote to something sacred. You see, if you're in Christ Jesus this morning, you are sanctified through the Spirit. And that means many things. One of the things it means, you're unlike everybody else in this respect. You've been set apart. Right, you're like your other brothers and sisters who have been set apart, but you're unlike the rest of the world who hasn't been. And this is where David's, this is where David's confidence is coming from. He's saying, wait a second. You guys need to know something. You guys that are dishonoring me, the godly, the Lord has set the godly apart for himself. For what purpose? Do we might be holy and blameless and walk in the works that God has given us to walk in. And let's, let's think again. So we're thinking about our election right now. Let's think about our justification. To what pains has God gone through in order to set the godly apart for himself? He came in the person of Jesus Christ and died on the cross to take the sin debt. You see, my righteous God, oh God of my righteousness, 
What righteousness? The righteousness of Christ. Right? Jesus lived a perfect life in abject poverty in this world under this hot sun so that he had a perfect life to offer on a cross so that he could offer a perfect sacrifice in place for his people so that his people could be set apart in righteousness. God has set us apart. Now let's think about that. God's going through all this trouble to choose us before the foundations of the world. He's gone through all this trouble to justify us with a justification, as one old pastor said, is irrepealable. None of us have to worry about our justification being rushed into the court of appeals where someone say, hey, you know about that guy's justification there. Something went wrong. We're going to appeal it on a technicality. No, in God's court, he declares us righteous, and you're righteous when he makes that declaration. How are you made righteous? By the righteousness of Christ imputed or credited or given to you. In the jail, when I was doing ministry, going out to Columbia County Jail and doing ministry uh, with the inmates out there, and Tammy has taught me to qualify this. I wasn't incarcerated. I was going out there doing uh, doing services for the the, um, the men and women out there. I used to use the word record, and they got it because everybody was always talking about their record. And I went out and said one day, I said, listen, I want to tell you something. I've got a record. And boy, did it get quiet in that place. And they wanted to know where I did time. I said, I've never done time, but I still have a record. I have a record of crimes that I've committed against God. But here's the good news, everyone. This is the good news of the gospel is Jesus also has a record, and his record is perfect. And the moment you put your faith and trust in him, that perfect record is given to you, the cross and stick figure that I like to draw for everybody. Oh, God of my righteousness. Know this, you fellas. Those who are slandering the godly, those who are slandering his anointed, those who are walking in indifference to Christ, know this. You see, this could actually serve to lead unbelievers to faith. You need to know something. What you're doing, you need to understand something. The Lord has set the godly apart for himself. And to what pains has he gone through to set the godly to himself? To what pains has God gone through so that we can have salvation, so that we can come here and gather and sing these songs? So we could come here and gather, and, and, and people gave their lives so we could have our Bibles in front of us. You think of all of the trouble that God has gone through so he could set us apart for himself. We think about sanctification through the Spirit. The Holy Spirit comes and dwells with us to sanctify us. Let's leave one more, one more, okay? How about providence? Think of, all of the, think of all of the trouble God goes through in his providence to see to it that we are brought through certain trials or certain uh, personal experiences so just at the right time somebody can bring the gospel to us and share the gospel to us so that our hearts could collapse and we could, we could experience the gospel. For me, you know, one of the guys that was really instrumental in leading me to Christ never shared the gospel with me, but what he did do was he convicted me of my sin. And I don't mind sharing this with you. You know, we were in our music store. We still had our music store, and we just had the Christmas inventory brought in. It was like around September. And in that industry, you have to get that, you have to get that lined up. In fact, you're, you're thinking about Christmas in July. 
You're thinking about your retail in July. If you're not, you're not going to have it in time. So you're giving your orders in July. September-ish, stuff is starting to roll in. And this particular friend of mine, he is an outstanding bass player, like Victor Wooten, Snap uh, stuff. This guy, we used to close, he would show up around quitting time, and we would close the store. Me and him would sit and play blues sometimes until 11 o'clock at night. I mean, it was just, as soon as we started playing, the next thing we know, three hours would go by, and both of us, we got to get out of here. Um, one day he said to me, actually through a series of, of times, he'd come into the store. He, he would see my truck sitting there around quitting time, and he would come swinging in about 10 minutes to quitting time because he knew, okay, in 10 minutes I'm turning off the lights, we're turning everything out, and we'd go play with the toys, and we'd sit and play with the toys. And, and he says to me one day, he says, his nickname for me was Bad Dude because we always played blues. He's like, hey, Bad Dude, let's play some blues. Come on, Bad Dude. And this is what he would say afterwards. He'd say, hey, man, Bad Dude, when am I going to see you in church? And the first time he invited me, he invited me. In the course of about two, three months, he invited me three times. He says, man, bad dude, when am I going to see you in church? And I said, Kenny, you know the hours I put in. I mean, I, you know, Sunday morning is the only morning I get to sleep in. That's what I said. Do you believe that? That's what I said to him. And, and he would just put his head down and leave. And the third time, I remember it was that September. It was a September evening. He come in. We played. We did our thing as we were leaving. He says, man, bad dude, when am I going to see you in church? And I kind of snipped at him because I felt like he was pressuring me. And I snipped. And right after, have you ever snip at someone and wish you wouldn't have done it? it? I mean, we all have, haven't we? And I was like, I don't know, Kenny. I mean, Sunday's the only day I get to sleep in. One of these days I'll come. I'll, I'll come. And I could tell. It was like, it was already out. I wished I could have grabbed the words back up and said, come on, let's back up. Take two. Let's do this again. But you can't. And he just put his head down like this. He walked past me, turned around, he pointed to everything in the store. And he says, man, bad dude, what you're saying is that all of the Lord has blessed you and you can't give him one hour a week. <laughs> now, he said this to a proud heart that was very proud. And I still am proud of the fact that we pay our bills on time. Tammy and I don't have outstanding debts. We pay our bills on time. We always pay our bills on time. Here I am thinking, going through life, I pay my bills. I do this. I do that. I do that. And suddenly, suddenly, Kenny's bringing to my attention that I am delinquent and the biggest bill that I have in my life. That is the honor that is due to Christ Jesus for my life. I haven't paid him once. Or at least I haven't paid him in a long time. It's crushing. And really, what the Lord used that, he used that to convict me of my sins. God's providence, while I was living a life that obviously wasn't pleasing to God, he was ordering events so that this store would be brought into a town so that a certain individual who we, I just would happen to get along with and really like so that we could play music. Just the fact that he learned how to play, I learned how to play, and we could both play, and we gelled. So, I mean, he would lay down this big groove that you could lose a UP truck, USP, UPS truck in, and I would just play blues over it. You know, and it, it would just be, I mean, it, I wish we could have taped some of it. You know, but God ordered these events so that we could have this time, so that He could say this to me, so that I could come be become convicted of a sin. And after that, I began reading the Bible. What do I do? Know this. Here's where our confidence comes from from Psalm. Psalm 4 is a psalm of confidence that we can use anytime we're in a tight spot. 
And we could say, oh, oh, God of my righteousness. Oh, God of my righteousness. You've delivered us in the past. You've delivered me in the past when I've been in trouble. Oh, Lord, look to me now in my distress, if you will. May I know this. May I know that you have set me apart for yourself. My election, that sovereign choice, that justification, that sanctification, your providence in ordering all of the events and things in my life, all of these things are working together for the good of your church. Amen? Heavenly Father, we thank you, O Lord, for this great psalm of confidence, Lord, that you give us. And Father, may it fill our hearts with confidence this morning. And O Lord, Father, may we use it. May we use it as we talk to people because it only applies if we're in you. If we're not in you, if we're not in Christ, then at this point in time, we've, we, we're not walking as one who has been set apart. We can't know whether we've been set apart or not. Oh, Lord, I pray that, Father, this confidence would not be presumptuous, but it would be a, a way that is perceived. That it's, it's, it's gracious in every, every way. It's gracious and merciful in, in, in every way. Father, I pray that you will use it, O oh Lord, to call people, to call unbelievers out of darkness and into the light, that they too would be able to have this confidence to know that they've been set apart by you for your good purposes and pleasure. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.